The New Theology. This is number four, and it is entitled, Destroying the Foundation. I want to begin by asking some awakening questions. Why don't we hear heart-searching sermons today about the sanctuary, the close of probation, the investigative judgment, the sealing, the final atonement, and victory over sin, and the soon-coming crisis we all must face before the return of Jesus? The answer will be clearly given in this taped message as we conclude this series on the new theology. Let us pray. O oh God, our hearts cry out in despair as we hear so few spirit-filled sermons that convict the heart of Christ's soon return. We ask that thou will pour out upon us thy mighty power in this presentation so that we can understand Satan's final attempt through this new theology teaching to destroy the foundation of thy remnant church, thus making it impossible to preach with power to a dying world the three angels' messages of Christ, our righteousness. And we ask this petition in the name of thy dear Son, Jesus. Amen. Turning to the scripture, we read from the teachings of Christ the importance of having a solid foundation upon which to build our characters and anchor our beliefs. Let us read from inspiration, Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses 21 to 27. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the wind blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the wind blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now from these words of Christ, we see how important it is that our Christian faith have a sure foundation. But the leadership of our church knowingly destroyed the foundation of the remnant church in the 1950s by changing the atonement doctrine so that we could be accepted by the evangelicals. And in doing so, they adopted the Babylonian teaching of a final atonement being made for all at the cross, 
and that there is nothing more needed. Because of this, the belief in the heavenly sanctuary where Christ is now performing an atonement would not be essential. Finally, the church leadership clinched this apostasy at the General Conference in 1988 when it produced a list of our fundamental beliefs in which number 23 contained the teachings of the New Theology Doctrine. I'm quoting, There is a sanctuary in heaven, the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up, and not man. In it, Christ ministers on our behalf. And now these words, Making available to believers the benefits of his atoning sacrifice offered once for all on the cross. Keep, keep those words in mind because they are the words that are the basis of this new theology. Never forget, the sanctuary truths are the foundations of our faith. I'm quoting this from a letter, number 208, written in 1906. Quote, The correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. Unquote. How sad it is to realize that since we had destroyed the sanctuary truths, we no longer can preach the third angel's message with power, which is the righteousness by faith. For the third angel's message shows the way to the most holy place. Thus, we have become like the churches of Babylon, for our leaders have rejected the three angels' messages, just as the churches did in 1830 to 1844. This is explained in early writings, page 260 and 261, quote, all heaven watched with the deepest interest the reception of the first angel's message. But many who professed to love Jesus and who shed tears as they read the story of the cross derided the good news of his coming. Instead of receiving the message with gladness, they declared it to be a delusion they hated those who loved his appearing and shut them out of the churches. Those who rejected the first message could not be benefited by the second. Are you listening? Those who rejected the first message could not be benefited by the second. Neither were they benefited by the midnight cry, which was to prepare them to enter with Jesus by faith into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And by rejecting the two former messages, they have so darkened their understanding that they can see no light in the third angel's message, which shows the way into the most holy place. I saw that as the Jews crucif crucified Jesus, so the nominal churches had crucified these messages, and therefore they have no knowledge of the way into the most holy. And listen to these words. And they cannot be benefited by the intercession of Jesus there. Unquote. Furthermore, Inspiration reveals that our leadership would remove the foundation of our faith and replace it with another foundation. I'm reading this from Selected Messages 2, page 389. Quote, the truth for this time is precious, 
But those whose hearts have not been broken by falling on the rock Christ Jesus will not see and understand what is truth. They will accept that which pleases their ideas and will begin to manufacture another foundation than that which is laid. They will flatter their own vanity and esteem, thinking that they are capable of removing the pillars of our faith and replacing them with pillars they have devised. This will continue to be as long as time shall last." Unquote. What a prediction by the servant of the Lord. And this is exactly how the new theology was brought into our church, teaching that all we need to be saved is to believe that Jesus did all our obedience for us on the cross, that the atonement made on the cross was complete and final. So there's no more do's and don'ts, and victory over sin is no longer essential, and that the good news of justification is that it is unconditional. But let me tell you, friend, the Bible teaches something entirely different. Let us look at Romans, the fourth chapter, verses 24 and 25. <clears throat> if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Now, at the first reading, you may not see the deeper meaning of two atonements, for this scripture totally contradicts the false new theology that teaches unconditional complete salvation was secured for us on Calvary's cross. The true doctrine of the heavenly sanctuary not only teaches the atonement at the cross, but that there is also a final atonement being performed by Jesus, our high priest, now in heaven's sanctuary. This text teaches that the cross alone did not bring total justification because the death of Christ on the cross as a ransom must be followed by a work of a resurrected Christ in order to complete what was begun by Christ on the cross. Thus, the sanctuary ritual is absolutely necessary in order for God to separate sin from the sinner so that God can destroy the sin and yet save the sinner. The atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross provided a ransom, but it also provided the necessary blood which our resurrected Lord, as our high priest, is now presenting to God the Father as an atonement that we may secure forgiveness and cleansing for the sinner, and finally most important, to blot out the record of such sins. Let's look at this scripture once more. Quote, Christ was delivered for our offenses, Romans 4.25. This means that Christ died for our sins. He paid the ransom. Then notice the words that follow. And was raised again for our justification. 
Now, nothing could be stated more clearly in inspiration. Teaching of an atonement on earth and an atonement in heaven. And God's end-time prophet agrees with Scripture in stating that Jesus must perform a special work of atonement for each of us after the cross in order to obtain salvation for the sinner. This is clearly stated in the Great Controversy, page 489. I am quoting, The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. By his death, he began that work, which, after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. I must read that again. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. By his death, he began that work which after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. End of quote. Now, when we talk of Christ's death upon the cross and of the work that our high priest <coughs> is now doing for us, we speak of this as an atonement. So we must recognize that the first has to do with the sacrifice of the cross, which took place in the earthly court of the sanctuary, which is outside of the sanctuary. This atonement was for a ransom. And the second atonement deals with the work of a heaven of a resurrected Christ within the sanctuary of heaven. Read my book entitled The Sanctuary Made Simple for a complete description of these two atonements. Ellen White uses five different phrases in reference to these two atonements, such as, number one, made an atonement, two, a full atonement, three, a complete atonement, four, a perfect atonement, five, making an atonement. Now let us quickly study each of the five so we can clearly understand that there are two atonements involved in securing our salvation. Number one, made an atonement. You will find this in the Signs of the Times of December 17, 1902. Quote, On the cross of Christ, the Savior made an atonement for the follow fallen race. Unquote. This is in the past tense, meaning the sacrifice was completed, a price was agreed upon and honored, a debt was paid for the sins of the whole world. This transaction, or an atonement, was perfect, full, and complete. And furthermore, it never needs to be repeated. For we read in Hebrews 9, 28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. So the expression made an atonement has to do strictly with the cross. Number two, a full atonement. You will find these words in the book, Lift Him Up, page 
345. Christ made a full atonement. He gave his life a ransom. And in another place she speaks of Christ as he arose from the grave, in which she says, and I'm quoting from the Youth Instructor, May 12, 1901, Christ has made a full atonement. So you can see from these two quotations that Christ paid the debt we owe. It was a full atonement, a full payment, for he died in our place. Number three, a complete atonement. These words are found in the book Faith I Live By, page 91. Speaking of the death of Christ on the cross, quote, God has accepted the offering of his Son as a complete atonement for the sin of the world, unquote. Again, in the Review and Herald of September 24, 1901, quote, Christ planted the cross between heaven and earth, and when the Father beheld the sacrifice of his Son, he bowed before it in recognition of its perfection. It is enough, he said. The atonement is completed, unquote. We also read in Signs of the Times, July 3, 1901, quote, As Christ hung on the cross, he could say, It is finished. The demand of justice was satisfied. The way to the throne of God was open to every sinner, unquote. Now again, all of these quotes refer to Christ's atonement on the cross. But did you notice those words? Opened the way to the throne of God for every sinner. These words reveal that the cross was just the beginning of his work for the sinners. And he went to heaven to complete the work that he had begun. By pleading his blood before the Father, he not only provided forgiveness and cleansing, but also a separation of sin from the repentant sinner. Number four, a perfect atonement. As you read, lift him up, page 319, I quote, when he offered himself on the cross, a perfect atonement was made for the sins of the people. And compare this with the following found in Manuscript 165, 1899. In the council of heaven, the cross was ordained as the means of atonement. Unquote. So when Ellen White uses the term perfect sacrifice, we may include a perfect atonement. How we should praise God for Christ's sacrifice on the cross and with Paul, glory in the cross. What an atonement. What a price for our ransom. And now number five. We come to the last phrase, quote, making an atonement. <clears throat> Immediately you will notice that this is in the present tense. It could not mean the sacrifice of the cross, which took place nearly 2,000 years ago. Making an atonement means that an atonement is going on now, at the present time. Notice the word N-O-W in this quotation. I'm reading from Great Controversy, page 623. 
Now, while our great high priest is making an atonement for us, we should seek to become perfect in Christ. Unquote. So now you can clearly see that the spirit of prophecy teaches two atonements. The first atonement took place at the cross, paying for the sins of the world, and the other now taking place in the heavenly sanctuary, making it possible to separate confessed and forsaken sin from the sinner by blotting out the record of particular sins. This absolute truth is emphasized in another quotation. I am reading from Review and Herald, May 6, 1884. Quote, Christ has been manifest in the flesh. His blood has been poured out. The perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. And now our mediator stands before the mercy seat making an atonement for his people." Unquote. Notice how this agrees with what we have read before in the Great Controversy, page 498. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. By his death, he began that work which, after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven." Unquote. So now you can understand why the sanctuary truth is the foundation of our faith as we read in Evangelism, page 221, the correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. And in Testimonies number 5, page 520, I quote, We are in the great day of atonement. Now that doesn't sound like the atonement of the cross was final, does it? I'm reading again. We are in the great day of atonement. And the sacred work of Christ for the people of God that is going on at the present time in the heavenly sanctuary should be our constant study." Unquote. How beautifully this is stated in Psalm 77:13: "Thy way, O Lord, is in the sanctuary." In the book, The Great Controversy, page 488, the sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of men. Unquote. For in the investigative judgment now in progress in the heavenly sanctuary, God is dealing with the character of the one to be judged. In the book, Testimonies to Ministers, page 439, God's claim is placed in one scale and man's character in the other. Are you listening to this? And by the balance of the heavenly sanctuary, every man's doom is fixed for eternity." Unquote. Now that's a solemn thought. I'm continuing to read from Review and Herald, November 4, 1884. Quote, Each one in the day of investigative judgment will stand in character as he really is. He will render an individual account to God. Every word uttered, every departure from integrity, every action that settles the soul, will be weighed in the balance of the sanctuary. 
memory will be true and vivid in condemnation of the guilty one who in that day is found wanting. The mind will recall all the thoughts and acts of the past. The whole life will come in review like the scene of a panorama. Thus, everyone will be condemned or acquitted out of his own mouth, and the righteousness of God will be vindicated. Unquote. Thus, we can see that Christ is now making an atonement in the heavenly sanctuary which produces the necessary righteousness of Christ in us. Speaking of this atonement going on in heaven now, we read in letter 405 of 1906, quote, The atonement of Christ is not a mere skillful way of having our sins pardoned. It is the divine remedy for the cure of transgression and the restoration of spiritual health. It is heaven's ordained means by which the righteousness of Christ may not only be upon us, but in our hearts and characters. Unquote. This quotation has within it the gospel of the heavenly sanctuary atonement in a nutshell, for it is explaining imputed and imparted righteousness, which is absolutely necessary if we are to be ready for the wedding of Christ when he returns. As we read in Revelation 19.7, the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. A day-by-day -day atonement now will not only separate sin from us, but it will place the righteousness of Christ within us. This is the imputed righteousness of Christ in which Christ robes us in his righteousness of forgiveness so that we appear before God as though we had never sinned. This is what gives us a title to heaven. Praise God. In that wonderful book, Messages to Young People, page 35, is this outstanding quotation, quote, The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven." Unquote. So now we clearly can see that this is the result of these two atonements. The atonement which Christ is now making for us in heaven's sanctuary above is what the third angel's message is all about. Selected Messages 3, page 172. For the third angel's message is a proclamation of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is the faith of Jesus." Unquote. This helps us to understand what Ellen White means when she wrote in Evangelism, page 190. Several have been inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity." Unquote. We are facing an alarming crisis within our church today, for the liberal leadership among us is making a concerted drive to set aside the foundation of our faith. Why? 
so we can become like the evangelical churches which teach that there is a completed unconditional salvation having been made at the cross. So, therefore, there is no need of any further atonement in heaven for us. So now do you wonder why I call this apostasy? For our leadership has accepted the teachings of Babylon. And here is the proof I am quoting. The vicarious atoning death of Jesus Christ once for all is all sufficient for the redemption of a lost race. I have taken that from Question on Doctrines, page 22, written in 1957. Did you notice the words, all sufficient? In other words, there is no need of Christ's atoning work now in heaven's sanctuary. Again, notice how our leaders have thought to change the meaning even of the words of Ellen White in this quotation. I'm quoting. When, therefore, one hears an Adventist say or reads an Adventist literature, even in the writings of Ellen G. White, that Christ is making an atonement now. It should be understood that we mean simply that Christ is now making an application of the benefits of the sacrificial atonement he made on the cross." Unquote. That, too, was taken from Questions on Doctrines, page 381. That's a half-truth, which is a deceivable lie. Again, I say, unbelievable in the light of inspiration. This was followed by instruction to our ministry. Listen, I'm quoting from the ministry, February 1957, quote, the sacrificial act on the cross is a complete and final atonement for man's sin, unquote. So, since it is final, no need for Christ's atonement in heaven. This statement is also totally contrary to the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy. Our church began with a God-given foundation in which we believed and advocated that Christ with his own blood was making an atonement now for our sins. And today we are teaching that the death of Christ was a final atonement for sin. God help us. No wonder God gave us a clear warning of today's apostasy. Listen to this warning which has been unheeded. I'm quoting. There is to be no change in the general features of our work. It is to stand as clear and distinct as prophecy made it. Notice these words. We are to enter into no confederacy with the world, supposing by so doing we could accomplish more. No line of truth that has made the Seventh-day Adventist people what they are is to be weakened. We have the old landmarks of truth, experience and duty, and we are to stand firmly in defense of our principles in full view of the world. Testimonies number 6, page 17. Then boldly she declares in Testimonies 5, page 22, the professed people of God have compromised with the powers of darkness. And consider one of the very last statements Ellen G. White ever made, quote, I am charged 
to tell our people that some do not realize that the devil has device after device that he carries out in ways that make sinners out of saints. I tell you now that when I am laid to rest, great changes will take place. I do not know when I shall be taken, but I desire to warn all against the devices of the evil. Those are the words of Ellen G. White, written at Elmshaven on 2-24-1915. What a divine accusation. And listen to this, friend. Are we hoping to see the whole church revived? That time will never come. Unquote. Selected Messages 1, page 122. So I hear you say, Brother Nelson, what must happen then? The individuals who will make up God's true church amid today's new theology apostasy must examine every statement given by our leaders to see if it agrees with the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, and then stand firm for the God-given foundation of our faith, even if you must stand alone, opposing apostasy within the structure. We must keep the faith. So, when you hear from an Adventist pulpit that you need not be concerned with the sanctuary message, in which Christ as our high priest is presenting his blood before the Father to separate sin from the sinner in making an atonement for sin for his people, stand up as a servant of God and walk out. Be a witness for God. And if you read of such apostasy that there is no sanctuary in heaven, in an Adventist publication, cancel your subscription to that publication. If you discover new theology in an Adventist book that can you can sin until Jesus comes, put it in the garbage can because that is not the message that God would have us to believe today. It is not true Seventh-day Adventist theology. Don't fill your mind with such rubbish. If you think that I am exaggerating, just listen to this. If you think I am too outspoken and overemphasizing, just the other day I was preparing this message and I received a copy of the Southwestern University newspaper at Keene, Texas. You can imagine my shock as I read the headlines. It's okay to sin. The one writing the article goes on to state, if it were not okay to sin, we would all be lost. Jesus came and died for each one of us. He forgave every sin we will ever do at the cross. If Christ had wanted us to be sinless, he would not have had to die on the cross. I could go on and read more. All I can say, beloved, read it and weep. Such education is leading our youth to hell. And this new theology has infiltrated into many of our churches and into the teachings of our pastors. One lady recently wrote, the pastor of our Adventist church here in such and such a place tries to deny that the beast of Revelation has any connection with the papal power of the Catholic Church. He also claims it is no sin to smoke, drink, and dance because we are all sinners and Jesus has forgiven our sins 
before we do them if we only believe in him and love one another, unquote. And then this last week I received a letter from a doctor, an MD, who writes to me, the church in blank is following the promise keepers and has been throwing out E.G. White as a tool of the devil. Revelation 13 has nothing to do with the Catholic Church, and the three angels' messages have nothing to do with the gospel. No doctrine, only the gospel of love, rock music, and Sunday worship is coming. The pastor is not a young man either to have swallowed up the lies of the deceiver. Unquote. So now let me summarize. By Christ's death on the cross, he paid a ransom, an atonement, for the sins of all who would meet the necessary conditions of repentance and obedience. And today, Christ our High Priest is now making an atonement for the confessed sins of all penitent sinners, making it possible for such individuals to be clothed in Christ's righteousness and presented to God as candidates for heaven because the record of their sins have been blotted out so they can stand before God as though they had never sinned. Oh, friend, praise the Lord. Praise Him for these two atonements that make this possible. So now you know the answer as to why we are no longer hearing heart-searching sermons from many of our churches, such as sermons on the sanctuary, the close of probation, the investigative judgment, the sealing, the victory that we must have over sin, the final atonement, and the soon coming crisis we must all face before we meet Jesus at his second coming. Now you understand the reason. It is obvious because the leadership has tampered with our God-given foundation as try and is trying to replace it with new theology. And if you accept this false gospel, the above subjects, of course, are absolutely meaningless. May God help us to keep the faith by holding fast to the sanctuary foundation which God has revealed to his remnant, church, and to reject the present teachings of the structure in this new theology. Let us pray. O loving Father, may the convicting power of the Almighty rest upon the tens of thousands who have been misled by the new theology, that they and their misinformed leaders may experience the power of God to overcome sin now and be sealed, ready to meet Jesus. Amen. Love each sinner.
Sinner. 